Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, we're very happy to be back recording again. Um, it's really nice. We have another guest on the show. Um, today we have Sean O'Dell. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, but we'll start off the same as we kind of start every other podcast. Give us a bit of background about yourself. Kind of tell us where you started, how you got started, and, and kind of what your trajectory has been, I guess, through the cyber and IT world. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. And obviously, John, uh, good to be on with you, my friends. Uh, I mean, I have been on this journey a while now. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll take some time and, and kind of walk through the evolution. But I actually started as a customer. So I got my, you know, right out of college, uh, or I guess during almost towards the end of college, I actually started working for a international home builder based out of Dallas Forward, Texas called Syntex Homes uh, in the IT organization. Uh, yes, I worked in support, which I think everybody should have to at some point of their lives, uh, especially if you work in IT, it's like a rite of passage. Um, but I started working for them, you know, early on. And, you know, during that journey, I, I fell in love with configuration management, uh, you know, really enjoyed taking multiple servers, multiple desktops, workstations, however you want to put it. And uh, I actually owned Microsoft's SMS or now known as SCCM and Microsoft Mom and all that fun stuff uh, for, a, you know, at, at the time it was like a Fortune 150 company. Uh, and so, you know, they, they implemented all these systems. I stumbled upon taking that responsibility and that got me introduced into security and compliance and all of the fun things. Uh, and then uh, during the housing, I would say boom, but it's more of a, a housing, uh, housing tank. Uh, I left the housing industry, went to a small nonprofit, continued to do the same thing. Uh, but during, you know, kind of that initial journey, I got introduced to a software company called ConfigureSoft, uh, which was focused on security, configuration management, and they got purchased by EMC. And then those assets shifted over to VMware. And as soon as I heard they got moved to VMware, I uh, reached out, contacted a friend, and guess what? I got a job at VMware. So uh, that was that was a fun journey. And then I uh, spent you know, a good three and a half, four years at VMware, and I finally took the plunge, and I joined a startup. Uh, actually, I almost joined ConfigureSoft, but I was told not to uh, because of the subsequent purchase. Uh, so I was at VMware four and a half years, went to my first startup, which is called Arkin, and that is where I met Mr. Spiegel. Uh, that was my, you know, I, I would like to say it was risky, um, but the folks that were at Arkin were ex-VMware. Um, I can say it now. It was basically funded at the beginning by VMware or EMC uh, without anybody really knowing, but I did my due diligence, understood it. And then uh, we got acquired. I went back to VMware, did four more years, uh, built the cloud services organization with some folks that John knows really, really well. Milton, uh, you know, we had... Uh, we had Millen, we had, you know, uh, Guido Appenzeller and so on uh, that were, you know, led the team I was on. And then I have been on a run for the past few years at multiple startups. I've uh, been through one exit at a security company focused on infrastructure as code. You know, spent, uh, I joined a service mesh company way too early. Uh, no offense to the service mesh world, uh, but I joined way too early. Uh, and I love networking and I love security, but service mesh, that's, maybe, maybe we'll talk about it. Um, and then, uh, you know, today I work at a Kubernetes uh, and Docker focused, really container focused startup called Portainer. And I lead the marketing organization. And I think what, what's interesting is I've gone from customer all the way on the support side through, uh, you know, systems engineer to product manager to developer advocate to developer advocate manager all the way to now leading a marketing team uh, for a startup. And I and, and the reason I think that's interesting is because we really are marketing to um, developers, one, and then to the, to the powers that be, whether it's managers, directors, and above, who actually have to spend money. And so we're, we're really marketing to both sides of the team uh, and we're really both sides of the organization. And so my journey has been from customer to leading a marketing team really focused on net new challenges and solving developer problems. And that's where I love to focus my time. I, I'm, I'm a bit lost for words and that doesn't happen very often. John's smiling, <laughs> you can tell. Um, we could record about 10 episodes just on picking apart what you've just said. Um, 
But I want to kind of go back to one of the first things you said, and that was that everybody should maybe do support at some point in their life. Um, I have to admit, I agree with that. I, I think, and, we, and we've talked about it, myself and John recently, about kind of you need the fundamentals, or at least I believe it, and I, I, it's just my opinion, but the best way to learn the fundamentals is to do some form of support. I mean, I started off, funnily enough, supporting a, a game, and then I went to work on a first-line support desk supporting the whole of the infrastructure. And when I say the whole of the infrastructure, when I started off, that was maybe a file server and maybe a email server way back when it was MS Mail. Um, but I think in today's world, a lot of people lack the, the fundamentals. You, you get a lot of people trying to get into cyber that maybe are starting in cyber and haven't or or don't want to be involved in really any IT. And the best place to learn the fundamentals and how a network works and how a packet moves around is to to work on a support desk, in my, just in my opinion. And I'm not saying it's it's easy. I mean, I worked on a on a support desk where you had a headset on 24-7 pretty much, and suddenly you'd have a beep in your ear and the customer would be there. There was no, like you had, if you could be in the middle of a conversation and boom, you had to go, hello, da, 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 and do your spiel, right? But I learned a lot. Those were the years I learned a lot. And I took, and I kind of went up second line, third line into projects. I think we all took very similar journeys, right? Um, but I think we definitely lack the knowledge in those fundamentals because people are, jumping in and not necessarily understanding what where, where we came from we, we sorry john to say it again but we are old enough to remember the world of it starting right i was around when computers became a thing i mean we may have had a zx spectrum at home um but that was about it so i was there when we had bnc networks and all of that stuff so we grew up and learned and maybe we know stuff that we didn't even realize we were learning at the time because it grew with us. People are trying to enter now without all of that kind of basic knowledge. Um, John, I'm going to throw it to you. What What do you think? Um, I think, you know, obviously starting out at the base level and, and developing that empathy for the customer is is kind of critical in uh, it propels you in your journey. You've got to have the perspective of IT is about tools. That's what they do. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're you're trying to provide a, a business outcome. You're you're trying to reduce the friction of the operation so the operation can make money. And if it makes more money, you hopefully get paid more and maybe you get a bonus. But uh, having that empathy, I think, is is a critical thing. And I think another interesting thing you said is you you transition from being a customer. So myself and John have both done that. Was that a an intentional decision that you made to do that? And if it was intentional, why? Or was it just kind of by accident? Uh, it was definitely not intentional. So a little bit of backstory. I am the only person in my family who does not work in oil and gas. Yes, I live in Texas. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and of, of, of my family members, I'm the only one who never worked in sales until I went to the software world. Um, and so it was unique, right? I, I didn't take the same path as my brother or my dad. You know, my mom worked in oil and gas as well. And so for me, I, I really had no desire that uh, when the opportunity came along that, you know, allowed me to go from customer to vendor side, um, it was unique because I had a lot of opportunity to meet more than one customer, to work on different problems on different days, you know, different weeks. And, and while that was the case for me as a customer, um, the environment changed almost daily in some cases, right? Because I would be going from, from talking to a Fortune 50 company, Fortune 20 company, Fortune 200 company, Fortune 800 company, you know, all within a matter of uh, a short matter of time. And I, but the reality is going back to that empathy or the foundational piece I actually learned what it was like to 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 go through the problems, um, to know that there is not always an answer, and you really have to rely on a software vendor or a hardware vendor to solve those problems. And and as 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 the customer or as being a customer, it allowed me, I I believe, to have some credibility. <laughs> maybe maybe it went away in time, 
but it allowed me to have credibility to know, hey, this person was sitting in the same seat not so long ago. And 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 I I actually got in trouble a few times on the fender side because I, I didn't play the same game as some of the sales folks, right? <laughs> Um, and I was okay with that. And the customers were okay with that. Uh, it, it's, it's the way it works. Yeah. That's uh, one of the things I enjoyed about working with Sean is you didn't get the standard, uh, treatment. It, it, it was unvarnished. It, it was the, the truth and, and what was needed, especially when you're working with, uh, um, an early stage startup and, you know, this is their initial MVP product and, and you're the one helping them develop and, and, create the roadmap and finding the bugs. Uh, it, it was great to have Sean along for the ride. I think, so the credibility point that you just raised is something I've, I've thought about. Obviously, I've transitioned over, as has John, from being a customer into a vendor, right? And I've, I've wore the customer hat for 25 plus years. So by default, that's the hat I wear, right? That's my persona, right? So I believe as long as I wear that hat, I have credibility. Now, we, we're only new to crossing sides. You, you've obviously crossed sides longer ago. Do you still wear the customer hat first? Is that still your default persona? Absolutely. Uh, even though I, I work and am a part of a marketing team or, or lead the marketing team, everything we do is customer-centric. Yes, we're a vendor. Yes, we're trying to sell a product. Yes, we're you know, trying to make sure everybody knows about what we do. And, 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 and I think the kind of the, the pre-transition for me was focusing on developer advocacy where I was advocating for the company or for the, for the company I worked for, my employer, just as equal as I was, I was advocating for the, uh, for the customer and the, and the problem they were trying to solve, right? And so what I, I, for me, I look at it as everybody's got problems, shortcomings, challenges, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call them in this space. And my goal and my objective is to understand the problem of the customer, understand the problem of, of the developer practitioner and solve their problem. And if it happens to be our software stack, great. If it happens to be a partner, great. If it happens to be nothing within what we want to focus on, care to focus on, or even focus on, that's just fine too, because guess what? I know people in space and I will gladly introduce you and no need to, to uh, sugarcoat it, no need to, um, I don't know, John, John said, I'm pretty unfiltered. I am very unfiltered at times. Um, but, but at the end of the day, we have to, to solve the problem. And if that means not pushing or peddling my software, I'm okay with that. And uh, I think that continues to lend credibility. Yeah, and I mean, I was going to say, I think both me and, and John do, that as well i think i have a lot of conversations and we've had a lot of conversations over the last year or so and not every answer is by technology we we deal with culture resource budget at the moment the economy is not great so cso's and cios and companies are restricting budget i fundamentally pivoted onto the kind of vendor side because i wanted to help more people than i could in a single customer now that sounds similar to why you did it but also it's really broadened my horizons because i spent quite a long time at several companies i mean i did a, a, a couple of big stints like 10-year stints so you do kind of get quite blinkered because you're used to it being that way and i, I did my best to have peers in the industry, have friends, go and speak to other things, but you still get a bit blinkered. I've certainly found being on the vendor side, I've spoken to more people in a week probably than I would speak to in a year being a customer, right? And you, like you said, you get to speak to people in finance, marketing, oil and gas, retail, da, da, da. And, and although I'm generalizing, a lot of the problems are the same. They do have a lot of very, very similar problems. There are slight differences that make it quite important to, to what they choose but equally i've sat down with people in and said but well the same as you upset the salesperson where i've been like you need to deal with this this and this first before you come and buy us because if you buy us the product's going to be a failure you really need to look at your idp or fix other problems and the reason i do that is because for me it's about relationship building if we try we've all been sold to by people that just want to hit their number 
at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year, and we've ended up buying a tool that either sits on the shelf or doesn't do what they said it would do. And if they would have just advised us, then we would have probably bought from them again. And certainly the people that I would buy from over and over and over and I still have as friends now are the ones that told me the truth and I could trust. Um, but I said a lot there, John, and I'm sorry, you were about to say something. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to pull a thread there. Um, in, in 2016, and I think you saw this speech, I don't know if you did or not, Martin Cursado talked about the changing way of marketing and, and go-to-market and sales for uh, IT. He said basically that the way we were doing it in the past where you had marketing and salespeople going out and you know, basically selling in the traditional sense was going away. And what he saw was more of this move to the more of the developer model where you're focused on the developer, you're focused on what their needs are, um, that the, the sales mechanisms of the past weren't going to be useful in this, this new age. And I know you've kind of moved in that area. So kind of, kind of describe to us what this uh, new method is, not really new, but the, the way we're starting to move to, to sell product versus what it was in the past. Yeah, so uh, I, I I have to be careful because my unfiltered um, uh, tongue often gets me in trouble. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be I'm gonna be gracious and kind here, uh, or at least try to be. <laughs> um, orig uh, originally, what we tried to do is here is a screen from my piece of software that solves a problem, and here's the 14 widgets that make it work, and here's why it's great, and here's why we're better than everybody else. And it was always me. It was always like vendor centric. It was always us centric. Um, and sure, we needed infrastructure. Yes, we needed virtual machines. Yes, we needed virtual networking. Like we needed all of these things. But when when we started to think about it a little bit more, it 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 in turn became a conversation about, hey, you have a couple of problems that you're trying to solve, right? I can remember some of the things John was trying to solve in and around networking, not only you know within the data center but at the edge, and uh, you know very specific use cases and scenarios. And, you know, the traditional model would have gone in and say, hey, here's our four screens. Here's what they're going to do for you. They're super awesome. And you're going to solve all the world's problems. Right. But when when there started to be a shift, and I think what it is today is, hey, you have a problem. I realize that there are probably a few different ways that you can solve this problem. Right. From a few different vendors, maybe even two ways to solve it from the same vendor. Rather than getting into the, the widgets and the screens, it's like, hey, you've got a problem. Here's how I believe we can help you solve the problem. It may include us. It may include us and another. It may include the small, minimal piece of what we do. Or guess what? As you said earlier, it's people process and not necessarily a technology problem. And that is, that, that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of the, you know, die, die hard sales folks. because they just want to sell something and no offense to them. It is what it is. It's what we were, they were all trained to do. That's how it worked. Right. But at the end of the day, we've moved into this, this realm, whether it's developers or DevOps and dare I even say platform engineering, I've got to be careful every time I say that. Um, but that really is what we do. We try to solve a problem. And if it just so happens to be our solution, great. If not, let me hand you to somebody else who can help you. So is the process more consultive? You're almost like a consultant to them, trying to help them go through their problem and whether your tool fixes it or not. Uh, is that the approach? As opposed, to, you, you mentioned the marketing and here's my five screens yep. and here's my product and it's you know simple. It's it's amazing and it will solve world peace, so on and so forth. <laughs> it, it is consultative and it, it, it it's consultative from the beginning, right? I, I mean, I remember every even today if somebody's like, hey, we can we can cut your mean time to repair by 19%. I'm like, wait a minute. Do you have any data to back it up? Do you have customer data? Can somebody actually speak to it, right? But what we've, what this is trans transitioned into is, hey, we have a customer that's very similar to yours. We were able to solve and cut their mean time to repair to 19%. We hope we can do the same for you, but no guarantees, right? And it, it is more consultative give and take and working through rather than I would say pushing through um, working together rather than just pushing something on someone. I, I think for me, 
So my team was quite small. It, we, we had a, a large enough company, but the IT team was relatively small. And I think that's the same in a lot of companies, right? We were very busy. Um, we never really had too much time to go out and do a lot of research or look at what the vendors were doing. Um, so for me, I wanted to partner with the vendors. I wanted to, I, I needed to extend my team because they were working with products and they were working with customers and they knew what was happening out in the industry. So I would quite often say, I work in a manufacturing company. What are you seeing your other manufacturing companies doing? What do you recommend I should do? And rather than just go, we recommend you buy this, I'd want to know what are they actually doing? How does it help them bring value? How have you seen the business bring value from this? How have you seen them free up resources or reduce budget or whatever other positives came out of it? It was more for me, I need you to be an extension of that really small team because you need that. I mean, I had the luxury of being able to go to events and meet peers and stuff like that. But the people that worked for me didn't have that luxury. We were flat out doing projects or keeping the lights on. Whilst your head is down and you're focusing, you can't look at the world around you. And that's what I saw vendors as being. That, that But not not all of them were like that. They Some of them would just be like, buy those widgets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm not going to name a large networking company in the early 2000s that was known for that. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it and it is what it is. Yeah. So John, I knew, <laughs> I know you want to talk a little bit about platform engineering. So I'll throw that. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what it is. I think I, I think I finally understand it, but, um, so what, what is it? So there's a lot of debate and, and if you're, you know, you're on the Twitters or in LinkedIn, you're seeing this DevOps versus platform engineering, whole thing um i never really understood it uh so sean do you want to kind of clue me in here <laughs> you dare go um, there oh uh yeah this is this is a fun one um i want to clarify what devops is first um and by the way devops is different things to different people uh devops took on a life of its own in every part of every organization right um but for me, DevOps is really about getting back to why we have systems anyway. And uh, I learned this, and I learned this when I was on the customer side. I made a joke one day. Look, I worked in infrastructure, and I made a joke about the application teams not having great applications. And one of the application uh, product owners, he humbled me, uh, and she, he, and she is actually two different ones. They humbled me and said, "Hey." You do realize if we didn't have applications, we wouldn't have systems. And I kind of bowed my head and walked away in slight shame. And I think that's what actually the premise of DevOps is. Why do we have infrastructure? Why do we have developers, right? Developers are all about delivering applications. The infrastructure team is about hosting applications. And so you know, getting our own, you know, we all have opinions, we all have ideas of what's the best platform, what's the best this, or what's the best that. But what I loved about DevOps, at least the premise of DevOps, it was a culture or a mindset of collaboration and working together to solve problems and solve challenges. And it may be this week, we're gonna solve the smallest challenge of people process, or next week, we're gonna solve the challenge of, you know, introducing some automation into the picture. Or the next week, we're going to introduce automation to shut stuff down, right? That's what DevOps was about. Where my problem with platform engineering is, is not necessarily the idea or concept of platform engineering. It's the marketing that came around it from a certain company that I will not name names. Um, and an individual that I will not name names, just because it, uh, I, I have said plenty on, on the internet. Um, and what... I've actually been talking to pla uh, platform engineering teams or cloud engineering teams or cloud teams or clouds, you know, center of excellences for like five years now. This company just came along and said, we're going to call it platform engineering and we're going to, you know, say that we're the only ones who can do platform engineering, which I would argue is just fundamentally flawed because there were already organizations who didn't have a software stack sold by a vendor doing platform engineering. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it really comes down to the semantics um, of what you see as DevOps, what you see as platform engineering. 
the the one thing I think we always have to be mindful of this, right? When we talk about zero trust security, or we talk about um, you know edge networking, or we talk about like massive large concepts, there's no one vendor behind it, right? That's not a singular vendor message. Unfortunately, a singular vendor decided to take platform engineering and run with it and make it their own moniker, when in reality, it wasn't. And so for me, I'm a fan of platform engineering. It's actually just another layer on top of DevOps and delivering a platform rather than, in some cases, disparate systems. And that's okay, right? But I think that the, the, the key is DevOps was about doing what is best for the organization and doing what is best for the individual, the team, whether you're a developer, whether you're infrastructure, whether you're security. And platform engineering is just building a system, bringing all of that together. And so at the end of the day, I'm a fan of both. I am simply not a fan of the marketing moniker behind uh, behind platform engineering. And so I just want to be careful with that. Don't, I don't want anybody to misinterpret or misrepresent me here. I actually <laughs> agree with platform engineering, but it's been around for about five or six years, not a year and a half. So you, you raised the security word in, in right? So DevSecOps, right? Oh, in yeah. My so in my mind, you're taking developers and security and they're like, maybe I was going to say north and south, but they're like opposite ends of the spectrum because they don't necessarily see eye to eye. Um, I don't truly understand what DevSecOps means. So firstly, can you maybe explain that in words that I might understand? And also, how the hell does DevSecOps become a thing? I mean, it's important, but how have you taken two sides of the same coin, really, and kind of slammed them together? Yeah, so I'll give you a definition, and I'll give you an example of where DevSecOps would have actually been helpful. So DevSecOps is really the, the, the practice or the introduction of security testing, vulnerability testing, compliance testing at every stage of the software development lifecycle or process, right? Depending on how you look at it. Uh, I'll give you a real world scenario. I was, uh, this was when I was at VMware. I was at a, a large multinational bank in London, actually, uh, and meeting with uh, uh, <laughs> the CISO. And the CISO had just come from a meeting where one of his teams said, hey, we just built a brand new app. It's sitting on AWS and we're ready to go live with it. And he looks uh, at the team and goes, yeah, we don't have any security standards in place. We don't have any of this done. Like I, he's like, I cannot approve of turning this on. And a developer looks at that and goes, well, you're just hindering my progress. You're just preventing me from delivering an application and we need an application, right? But he comes into the meeting and he, he was obviously flustered and he uses an example. And uh, he goes, if they only knew that I'm ready for them to go to AWS, unfortunately, our tooling, our people and our process are not ready for this application just yet. And he goes, by the way, they're not responsible for the regulatory compliance that I am responsible for. And so, you know, whether it's the definition or whether it's an actual event, um, to me, DevSecOps is really about bringing everybody to the table. I remember, um, you know, from 2000 to 2015, maybe even 2017, security was kind of like this one-off on the other side of the room where they showed up only when they had to show up. And, and really what DevSecOps has done is say, hey, security team, we get it, you're not developers. By the way, we're not security experts. Come sit at the table. As we build out our infrastructure, as we build out our applications, we want you to have an equal part at the table. And, and really it's not only the people process side, but it's actually doing introducing that in an automated testing fashion. So that's my example and definition of DevSecOps. I, I think to be honest, we've, and I'm gonna be as careful as I can when I say this, but security has always been an afterthought. And I don't just mean in IT in general, I mean like the first car never had a lock on the door because no one thought you'd steal cars. And then when they added locks on the door, they gave everyone the same key. So it's the same concept. We've always thought about security after because it's always inevitably slowed the process down. But I've always found that it's better to slow the process down a little bit than to get compromised. And historically, maybe a compromise wasn't as bad as it would be today. 
because we used to all have websites that just sat on the internet and you could have played with them and hacked them and our I mean, literally everything was open. I mean, if you if you were smart enough back then, you could have got into any company at any time. Firewalls weren't even a thing. So we've always thought of security afterwards. And therefore, I remember introducing passwords to people. And they're like, why do I need a password? Well, because I'm going to give you an email address. Yeah, but why does that mean I need a password? Well, because you don't want people being you, sending emails as you. And then they were like, okay. So for me, security is always about explaining why you are doing something. Because I can guarantee today, if you said, I'm going to sell you a car, and it doesn't come with any locks, anybody can steal it. People would go like, are you nuts? But that's because things have happened. So generally, we apply security really after the horse is, horse is bolted. And, and I think we need to change that concept. Um, and I lead you nicely into cattle and pets, John. There you go. I, I said yeah, horses, yeah. right? So, so yeah, last week I was at a conference. Um, it was in Atlanta. It was a Avanta conference, and they brought some CISOs on stage, and and these guys started talking about how the cloud has transformed them, uh, and it's made them a lot safer and and more secure. And all I could think about was, all right, so you had a breach, you had an event, a compelling event, you got a whole lot of budget, and uh, your answer was move it to the cloud. Well, that really wasn't what it was. It was basically this idea that they were able to transform their applications. So move from a monolithic or a client server model to a much more cloud-based, you know, microservices, container-based. Um, you know, given that you work in that area, do you kind of see that that is actually maybe one of the mechanisms that get us out of this situation we're in today, where um, we're basically having to, you know, Jay's point, secure the car and and maybe it's next that we need to put armor on the car and then maybe next it's that we need to put you know some sort of uh, mechanism on it so it shocks the person it just seems to me that the way we're dealing with security is just another bolt-on another bolt-on another bolt-on whereas actually the problem is how these applications are built and and modernizing them you know puts them in an, in a realm where they actually can be more secure Oh, uh, this we, this topic we could sit and talk about for days. Um, so you use the word compelling event. Uh, if 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 an organ and, and I I, I want to be careful because CISOs or CTOs or CIOs who who state that they have improved security because they went to the cloud actually have what I would say cart before the horse. It's actually you've been able to modernize an application or get it out of the uh, dredges of lots of past history um, and baggage and move it into a modern you know world. So you're then able to actually have components or more visibility into the security, right? So so that's the first part. I think the second part is what is a compelling event? Um, so you used uh, so so Jay, you used uh, used the car as an example. I'm going to use the house as an example. Uh, so I grew up in South Texas. No offense to South Texas. Uh, great part of the world, great country, great food, great people. But when you're close to certain countries, they do things differently. Like, like let's be honest, right? So guess what? We locked everything. Cars, houses, sheds. I mean, you name it. We locked our bikes up, right? And then uh, like we, we locked everything. Because we knew there was a potential for a compelling event or somebody in my immediate you know, sphere of influence had a compelling event in the past, right? And so I remember, um, actually, it's interesting because John has his bike behind him. And I remember uh, going uh, to visit John one day and he had, he was, I can't remember if he was unlocking the bike or, or locking the bike after a ride. And I kind of joked and I was like, why are, you, why are you locking your bike or why are you, you know, unlocking the bike? And it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's in the United States, different parts of the world, right? Um, wherever it may be, certain people just have compelling events where they lock their stuff and that's okay. But the, the problem with security has been you have to have a compelling event. So what, what I actually think is the, the most beneficial to cloud or modernization or, or, or what, you know, whatever marketing buzzword you wanna use behind it, it's actually getting to the fact of 
hey, security is important. And if we introduce it earlier on in the process, it's not as tasking. Or guess what? Security is not this, you know, scary thing. Uh, you know, very simple. Um, you know, my, my past four or five years, <laughs> I could use a, a scenario at VMware where I uploaded my uh, peers' keys, uh, AWS security keys to GitHub or uh, to GitHub. And then instantly a bunch of machines started getting created on AWS. And I didn't realize those keys were in that, in that repository, right? But if we would have had a very simple scanner that would not have allowed me to actually merge the code. And in this case, it was infrastructure as code with, with Terraform, right? Guess what wouldn't have happened? A security breach. And, and, and now we have tools and now we have systems and now we even have embedded functionality in GitHub to prevent that, right? But it always took a compelling event, unfortunately, but it seems now security being a part of every part of the process is actually a help. Um, but it's still a hindrance because no offense, developers are not security experts and security experts are not developers. <laughs> so, so there's this weird intersection between the two. Um, but, but to me, that just continues along the trend. Security is important. And unfortunately, just the way CEOs and CFOs look at it, unless there's a compelling event, Maybe you'll get some money, maybe you won't. But definitely the cloud has helped with that modernization effort. So what have you seen that's been successful? Uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of these customers on a regular basis and uh, the conversation between security and the developer generally doesn't go very well sometimes. You know, again, you're slowing me down, you know, to, to uh, James Hamilton, who was at AWS. I just, I just want to deploy great applications. I don't want network and security slowing me down. Yeah, uh, which I, I appreciate the sentiment of I want to just deploy applications. But unfortunately, just deploying applications doesn't solve, it may solve your immediate need, but you have a peer who is responsible for networking. You have a peer who's responsible for security. You have a peer responsible for operations and uptime, right? And, and just because you get it out fast doesn't mean it's ready. I'll, I'll give a perfect example. I work in marketing at a, a startup, at a software company. Uh, we are doing some changes and there is a some necessary code releases or code changes that have to happen for a marketing push to actually occur. And guess what? Yesterday, I literally said, I do not want marketing to be the reason that the code goes out with bugs or incomplete. And I said, I will gladly delay my marketing efforts around this to make sure the code is complete. And if I can do that in marketing, a developer can slow down a little bit and, and not get in the way, not impede. So, so you talk about tools or we talk about processes, right? Um, it, it, at its simplest form, there are security vulnerability, you know, security vulnerability scanning solutions out in the market that cover anything from infrastructure all the way to code, to libraries, to you know, linters to, you know, everything you can think of in the code world. And all I require is you to develop on your local machine, simply do a, a Git push. And as soon as it hits that Git repository, that system's going to kick off and run security checks, library checks. It's going to run, oh, well, the infrastructure you deployed on has an open bucket to S3, or you have way too many permissions for a particular user, right? So for me, there are tools in place and guess what? It gives the developer the same view that they're accustomed to because they're sitting in their repository. They see, oh, well, it failed because of X, Y, Z. Well, the simple form is, oh, this is this particular CVE that's associated with this library or this particular you know, um, EKS instance um, has an open port that may not be the most, you know, and, and you can set your own security standards on it. So the, the key is developers getting results and understanding the results in a quick, simple form, all within the, the ecosystem or the world that they're accustomed to. And are we perfect yet? Absolutely not. Are there everyday new solutions and tools coming out to make this happen? 100%. They have to be willing, and I've seen it more and more over the past couple of years, where they are more and more willing to slow things down if it is an automated slowdown in their traditional Git system and, and, and repository system, that way, if there is a problem, if there is a code vulnerability, if there is a CVE, all the way down to infrastructure, all the way up to the, uh, to the code base itself, 
guess what? Oh, I can just do a click repair and it will actually fix it for me. <laughs> Great. I sit back and they don't have to be experts. And, and the developers, dev, sec ops teams, um, practitioners and infrastructure folks that, that do this, it's, it's, it's almost enlightening. Um, and it's, it's the simplest thing and it doesn't have to be just the cloud, just, just in case everybody thinks that's the only way to do this. It can be anywhere. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm okay with that. So we're getting short on time, but I want to, uh, and funnily enough, I can't imagine this is going to be an easy question to answer, but I want to pivot a little bit back to the zero trust word you used earlier, because we, we really should ask it. Um, you said it's not a product, right? And I have to agree with you. I don't believe it's a product. Um, but what is it for you if it's not a product? What does it mean for what you do and what do you see in, in kind of, DevSecOps, how do you see it affecting that? Because um, that, I mean, we've not got a massive amount of time left, but do your best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll rapid fire this. Least privilege, uh, secure authentication, authorization, and continuous validation of, uh, of permissions. Sim simplest way to look at this, I'll go to my children, right? I've got three kids. I've got a 19-year-old. She has full trust. She can do whatever she wants to do. She has full access. She's in, you know, she's a university. All I care about is just turn, find my, turn, find my iPhone on and we're good to go. Right. I'm, I'm not here to monitor you. I have my 15 year old. On the other hand, he's a teenage boy. Well, guess what, my friend, you get a little bit less access. <laughs> right. And then my, and then my 10 year old, you know, his, his problem is he'd sit on Fortnite forever. Right. So guess what we do? We put a little bit of limited, you know, we, we, we put some boundaries around it. Right. So for me, zero trust is all about giving the necessary users the necessary privileges at the right time and removing them when not necessary. Um, and I think that should we, we see this as a as a as a as an IT problem or a security problem. I would argue zero trust should be with everything. <laughs> like, you know, I, I give my Amazon driver access to my garage door opener to put a package in my garage. And guess what? They don't get a key, they don't get access to the house. And it's all through a secure system, right? So it's levels of access. Um, and that to me is the like simplest form of zero trust. No, and I mean, so that was one of the shortest answers we've had on zero trust, but probably one of the best. Because I definitely see it as not an IT and security problem. I see it as a, a cultural problem. And I mean, everywhere. We, we, we apply zero trust in a lot of ways in our life anyway, and we historically always have without really knowing. But, but taking that philosophy that you said about the driver and applying it to everything in our lives it is pretty key because for me, Teaching people in a business to protect business assets is difficult because they're not their assets. They don't necessarily care because the CISO is going to get fired. They're probably, even if they do, they'll get another job. It's not their livelihood. But the ransomware attacks are now bigger than that. They're attacking hospitals, which could affect people, um, whether it's directly or indirectly. I think John had some issues with your driving license, etc. There are things that are going on now that, people outside of the standard area where we work or a standard business are being affected. And I can guarantee if somebody turns up to a hospital to have a major operation, there's been a ransomware attack and the systems are down, suddenly they're going to, they're going to be aware. Um, but let's pivot to some fun questions because I mean, you live in Texas. I need to talk about food, right? Um, so we talked a little bit before we started recording about, I, I really like hard eight barbecue, right? I, it, Oh yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a chain, but the one I've been to is like Plano Richardson type area. Um, yep. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. So if you went out to eat in Texas and you could not eat barbecue, right. Or steak, <laughs> what would you eat? Uh, okay. So random fact, I am a seafood over steak any day of the week. I, oh, I did know not that. know that. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, I grew up, I grew up in South Texas, man. I grew up on the water. So shrimp, redfish, All whatever. Right. Um, so I do want to, I'll clarify. So, so Heart 8 Barbecue started and originated in a town called Stephenville, Texas. Uh, there is, uh, there is now a series of them in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Heart 8 is probably the best chain in Dallas-Fort Worth. 
Uh, but if you ever come to Texas, take two days and do what we call the barbecue run. And you can literally do Dallas, Houston, Austin, and hit a whole lot of barbecue joints. And they're usually out in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Um, so if I was to pick a meal, um, oh, man. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of Mexican food, and I don't mean Tex-Mex. I do enjoy Tex-Mex, but I actually like real Mexican food. Um, and so I would probably pick a restaurant that we have here in Fort Worth. Uh, that serves uh, mole enchiladas, uh, which is just fantastic. Um, but if I wanted to go fancy, um, we have a we have a local chef here in Dallas, Fort Worth, called Tim Love, and he has a French restaurant called Caterina's that is uh, jacket required for men, and they take your cell phone and put it in a packet, and so you are not allowed to have a cell phone at the table. And that is by far the best meal, not only food wise as a foodie. Uh, but it is an absolute great time, food, drink, and nobody has their cell phone. So I have two questions. I'm going to follow up then. I went to Austin maybe a year ago, and we had um, barbecue coming on the way back from Austin to Dallas. Um, okay. In a little town where they also have a famous donut place. Was it called Salt Lake? Yes. Salt Lake. Right. So yeah. I really enjoyed yeah, that. Salt Lake barbecue. And where did you live in <laughs> South Texas? So I'm from Corpus Christi, okay. so it's it's the seventh largest town in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. I've been to Corpus. Two hundred eighty, three hundred thousand. So people. my yeah. my old company had a site in Corpus, um, ah. and I had really good Mexican food in Corpus because the person I went to visit used go. to work for me was Mexican. Um, so that's why <laughs> when you said South Texas near the beach, I went there at a time when all that yep. horrible algae came in. Um, oh red, yeah, red algae. Oh, it happens. Oh yeah, red algae. It, it's 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 called red tide. So I do want to be careful here because just the, the introduction. Because you said food in Texas, so I would I would like to express a meal I shared with Mr. Spiegel here. Um, it is in Las Vegas called China Poblano, and if oh gosh, you yes. did you did hear this correct? It is Chinese and Mexican food where you have queso flameado with chorizo to begin with, and corn tortillas, and then you have dim sum. And then you have other Mexican food along with other Chinese food. And it is the most amazing experience. Is that where we ever. went, Joe? So, we didn't go there. No. It's not I the one in so. the Mandalay. It's, it's Chinese. No, this is in We're the going. Cosmo. It's in the Cosmo. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the sorry. Cosmo. The key word is the key word is end, not combined. It's and yeah. so it's Chinese and oh, that's Mexican. So yeah, that's amazing restaurant. But anyway, I'll hand to you, John, to wrap up with yeah. one final question. All right, John. So what's what's the latest thing you've made? Because uh, I know you enjoy to cook. What's the what's the latest amazing oh. meal? So we just had Fourth of July. No offense to my British friend on the call. Um, sorry, long live America. <laughs> um, I, I really want to make a joke about British food, but I'm not going to. Um, what did I cook? On on 4th of July, I smoked uh, pork, uh, pulled pork, um, and uh, what else? Uh, trying to think. Uh, prior to that, uh, I used my griddle just as much as I used my smoker. And uh, I, I made, yes, I made fried rice uh, like two or two days before. So I'm a foodie. I like to eat food. I like to cook food, and I like to smoke meat. So, okay, so yeah, that's that's a little being bit a of foodie. It. I'm going to have to ask you the question: um, oh, pineapple on go. pizza or not? Hundred percent. So let me let me let me let me take this a little bit further. Yes, <laughs> yes. So so I I actually appreciate my Italian friends and their hatred of adding fruit to pizza, and I'm okay with that. To each their own. So I actually prefer pineapple with jalapeno to go along with either pepperoni or beef on a pizza. Oh, wow. Spicy and sweet along with the meat and great cheese. So there you go. To be honest, I'm glad I asked you at the end because it would have been a very short podcast. Um, John's going to try and convince me to have pineapple on pizza. Now, I've been to Italy a lot. You would get thrown out of a restaurant in Italy for asking for pineapple. Um I'm willing to give it a try, John. So I, I'm saying this recorded. All right. Sorry to anyone out there that's listening and really has a hatred for it like I do, but I will try it. So so I guess so I guess it is. So last year at Black Hat, 
I got you to eat oysters despite your your constant protesting. So this year it's been pineapple. So I guess when we're in Vegas, it's going to be pineapple pizza. I'll have to find the right place to go because it it cannot be pineapple out of a can. It yeah. must be a legit, yeah. legit Let's pineapple. Well, Jay, right. if you say where the podcast would have been really, really short, so I'm going to blow your mind here. I think pizza and hamburgers are overrated. Well, I don't necessarily disagree. I, where I've had some really good pizzas in Italy, so the right pizza. Agree. The right pizza in the right setting is good. Pizza really came from using up spare ingredients. So when you think of it like right. that, you're like, okay. Um, again, the right hamburger in the in the right place. Again, I mean, but we can have a whole podcast on food. But I mean, I really appreciate you coming <laughs> along. It's been a blast. Yeah. Um, I'd love to meet you at some point and go out for barbecue. And we'd love to get you back on because we've only really touched the the tip of some of the real kind of important topics that I'd like to talk about. But I do appreciate you coming on. John, anything from you? Absolutely, Jay. No, it's always great to catch up with Sean. So, yeah. Been a blast. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Thank John. You appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. All right. thanks for listening if you enjoyed this discussion please give the edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service and also connect with the ssd forum on linkedin get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the security service edge